A record-breaking heat wave swept Europe, leaving around 2,000 people dead as of last weekend in yet another climate change-induced disaster. But the U.S. government is still stubbornly refusing to take action. The Biden administration is resisting calls to declare a climate emergency and unlock powerful new executive authorities. And the Democratic Party-controlled Congress has been unable or unwilling to agree on any new measures. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We are an independent show. We thank you for your support. We can do the show with you. We can't do it without you. Today, we're talking to Tina Landis. Tina is an organizer in the environmental and social justice movements. She's also the author of a book, a recent book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina is currently on a nationwide book tour. Tina Landis, welcome to The Socialist Program. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining. I mean, last week, all the headlines, Tina, were Europe is on fire. I mean, literally on fire. A heat wave, Britain, Great Britain, London experienced the hottest temperatures in the last, I don't know, maybe forever. And yet, when you looked at the headlines, they were sort of this weird juxtaposition. Emergency, emergency, emergency. And then Congress won't do anything. Biden's hands are tied. I'm looking at the New York Times front page from last Thursday. The front page, GOP strategy for climate action is to delay it. And then weirdly, the subtitle, no longer in denial, but fearful for the economy, as if the Republicans aren't doing anything or the Democrats aren't doing anything because they're really worried about the economy, as opposed to just being, you know, shills running interference for the big energy monopolies, the big capitalists. Anyway, Tina, I want to start by playing an audio clip. It's an audio from several news stations from last week, but it just highlights what we're experiencing in Europe, but it's also in the U.S., it's in Africa. In fact, it's all over the world. Let's listen. Scorching heat, buckling roads, raging fires, and hundreds dead already. An intense heat wave has gripped much of Europe. In France, officials say the country is experiencing an apocalypse of heat. Record-breaking temperatures are fueling wildfires, burning out of control across huge swathes of France, Greece, Portugal, Spain, and Italy. The heat is especially shocking in the UK, a country not prepared for this kind of weather. Most people don't have air conditioning. Many trains are delayed or canceled because the rails could buckle in the heat. They're only rated up to 95 degrees. North of London yesterday, they had to stop flights for several hours because the runway melted. 
Tina, for a long time, there was the right wing was in basically in climate change denialism. They've changed their tunes. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Whatever was speculative 20 years ago, it's not speculative now. Global warming is real. Climate catastrophe is real. And unless something is done, unless there is a solution, which is part of the name of your book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, unless action, real action, radical action, comprehensive action is taken, we know where this is headed. And yet, let's just start by talking about why the existing capitalist governments seem to be completely paralyzed in the face of what's an obvious problem. Right. I mean, every year... (laughs) Conditions are getting worse. Climate change is getting worse. And millions of people around the world are impacted in their daily lives. And yet capitalist governments are completely failing, as they always do, to really take care of people, to put the people's needs as the priority. Because the function of capitalism is really, you know, to make profits for the corporations, right? To put the rights of the corporations above everything else. And, you know, there are solutions, there are study, many studies done that show that we have the tools to actually solve this, to actually reverse climate change within just one generation, actually. But capitalist governments are doing very little to nothing to actually address the root cause and to actually, you know, transform how we live in relationship with the planet. And that is what's needed, honestly. These minor reforms that are being tossed around, you know, in the U.S., even those, I mean, even the, what was blocked by Manchin, the $300 billion for you know, tax incentives for clean energy, like, even that is not going to address the actual crisis. Studies show that the U.S., just the U.S., needs to spend $1 trillion annually over the next decade if it's actually going to meet its emission reduction measure goals. So, you know, it's really, it's so frustrating because it's really the system itself, the system of capitalism that's standing in the way of humanity from actually addressing the climate crisis. Um, you know, China's doing way more than anyone else, but because they have a socialist government, because they have control over an in- industry and transportation and things like that, where they can directly plan their economy and decide where money goes and what's built and what isn't built so that they can actually develop in a sustainable way. And under capitalism, that's impossible because it's really you know, up to the corporations, whatever they want to do. And honestly, like they've known for since the late 1950s, the oil companies did studies in the late 1950s that showed that their products, that burning fossil fuels was going to be warming the planet, warming the atmosphere. So they've known for a long time the trajectory of where we're going and what will happen and that it's going to lead eventually to our extinction. And they've done absolutely nothing. And this, you know, the oil companies have done the actual opposite by covering it up, by lobbying against renewables, by spreading disinformation and denialism. These entities really are criminal. Their assets should be seized by the government, and we should use those funds to transform our world into a sustainable one and one that, you know, we can survive in. Tina, there was an acknowledgement in the 1960s that the unrestrained economic development that was taking place inside of Western capitalist countries in particular, but not them alone, was causing a lot of pollution. Like you couldn't swim in lakes. The Great Lakes were basically dying. Rivers were so polluted, so toxic that some rivers actually set on fire. There was like really dramatic evidence that 
capitalist development, unrestrained, unregulated, was leading to pollution all around the country and all around the world, garbage piling up. In other words, it was becoming a toxic environment. It still is, but there was, there was because there was an acknowledgement of it and action was taken by capitalist governments, even though they still had the profit motive, even though they were still devoted to maximizing profits for corporations. There were reforms implemented that made a difference. I mean, the waters, bodies of water became cleaner. The Great Lakes, you could swim in them again. It's not clean, clean, but it really made a difference. And, you know, a lot of people die from pollution. A lot of people die from environmental toxicity introduced into their environments. And they, that hasn't stopped. But, you know, there was at least some action taken Anyway, let's just talk about what the capitalist government could do, even short of socialism. Like, what could they do right now? And obviously, they have the power, the authority, the tools to do some things right now. I mean, what might be slightly mitigating from your point of view? And then I want to talk, of course, about the big picture in terms of overall climate solutions. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, Biden could declare a climate emergency that would unlock billions of dollars annually to address some of these issues. He could also adopt a Green New Deal, you know, similar to FDR's New Deal, where, you know, it could be a massive public works program with training of millions of workers to transition, you know, and build the renewable energy infrastructure to shift our agriculture to be regenerative instead of the industrial methods that are depleting the planet's resources and creating lots of greenhouse gases in the process. You know, it could be major projects of workers going out and planting trees, restoring lands that have been depleted. All of these things, you know, would help cool the climate, right? So there's much work that could actually be done under capitalism. And, you know, some capitalist countries are taking some of those initiatives. So, yeah, much could be done. And really, yeah, like you talked about in the 60s, 70s, you know, things were very, very polluted and very toxic. And and the reason that the EPA was formed was because there was a mass movement demanding that something be done about this pollution that people were living with. And that's what is needed now. We need a mass sustained people's movement to actually pressure the government to adopt a Green New Deal, to adopt these reforms that could actually help won't necessarily solve it because it stems from the system of capitalism itself, the system of overproduction and endless exploitation of the planet. But it would help, you know, in the short term to mitigate the impacts of climate change. But without this mass sustained movement that's threatening the profits of the ruling class, you know, they're not going to take any major action. You can see, you know, Biden said before he came into office, nothing will fundamentally change. You know, you know he's a friend of big business. He, he got the second largest campaign donations from fossil fuel corporations, second only to Trump in 2020. So he's not an environmentalist. But with mass, mass public pressure, people in the streets demanding change, he would be forced to take action in our interests. That's the only way it will happen, because right now he's his buddy Manchin, you know, he said, we're friends, you know, so like he's not willing to fight for the reforms that we need, that the people need. I want to keep talking about some of the immediate reforms that could be undertaken now. You know, frequently revolutions happen when, when you look through history. Revolutions happen not because a system can't do something, because a government can't do something. It's frequently like a government could do something but won't. It won't do it because the interests of 
the ruling class, the dynastic rules in the, in the old monarchist stage states in, in Europe, for instance, that were eventually toppled. A lot of the reasons they were toppled, a lot of the reasons that the catalyst for uprisings happened or coups happened or even revolutions happened was the failure to do that which was possible to do. So I want to stay on the topic, if we could, of immediate reforms short of radical socialist transformation. One of the things that's being talked about, and I'm interested in, to get your opinion because I don't know enough, I want to learn about these things, is reforestation. And there's that the movement or the call to, to plant a trillion trees. And then the issue is, can you plant a trillion trees? Where do you plant a trillion trees? There's all sorts of organizations involved in discussions, at least, and maybe some actual activity, and I want to get your opinion on it. 47 countries had pledged to restore degraded lands as part of the bond challenge of 2020 and 2030, and they're looking at all kinds of territories or lands that would be available for landscape restoration. Anyway, what would it mean to plant a trillion trees? How big of a difference would it make? And is it possible? And then if it is, why isn't it happening? Yeah. So you have to look at how, you know, what trees are being planted. You know, it needs to be, it would need to be trees native to the area you're planting them in and a diverse array of trees. So like recreating a natural forest area so that the ecosystem itself is strong. If you're just planting like monocrop trees, <laughs> that's a very weak ecosystem. It's more vulnerable to pests and climate stresses and things like that. So you would have to do it in a very yeah, conscientious way of understanding the local ecosystem and what would thrive in that area under the current climate stressors. But, you know, studies show that if we just reforested previously forested lands around the globe, it could draw down two thirds of all the carbon in the atmosphere that's been emitted since the Industrial Revolution. So it could really have an effect and cooling the climate, also restoring water resources, because trees actually create rain. Trees maintain the small water cycle, which is really what's been disrupted, particularly in, you know, drier areas like the western U.S. and other places in the world. But you cut down all the trees and then that water cycle is disrupted and you're, you're getting, then you're getting these like really heavy rains and then floods and droughts and this whole deteriorating cycle. So, Yes, planting trees is a really positive move forward. Not only that, biodiversity, it would help biodiversity, which is also a, a key climate stabilizer because every species of animal, plant, and fungi play a role in creating like the most optimal conditions of all for all of life to thrive in the system. And that includes us too, right? So, you know, it, it ba helps balance the climate, balance the ecosystem by having a biodiverse thriving habitat. So yeah, we need to move in that direction. And also, I want to point out, we need to plant trees, not harvest them. We need to let them grow. We need to let them get old because the older they are, the more carbon they store and the stronger that eco, that habitat is, the ecosystem. So yes, this is. I don't know why more isn't happening. More isn't happening because it's a cost, right? It's a cost that you can't make profits off of, right? So under capitalism, you know, unless you're harvesting those trees, that's really, it's, you're putting money in and you're not getting anything out in monetarily, right? Other than you know, helping our survival in the future. 
Yeah. So I know China, you know, China's been working on this great green wall for years now. It's a 3,000 mile long reforestation program that they have on the edge of the Gobi Desert. And they have other, they have lots of other ecological restoration projects like the Los Plateau. They restored an area of depleted land the size of Belgium to like a thriving agroecological area. And the farmers in that region, it was like 2.5 million farmers in that region are now not in poverty anymore. They were employed to restore this area and now they have lands that they can actually farm in a regenerative way. So there are things happening around the globe, not everywhere, and there needs to be much more, and especially here in the U.S., it's really, you know, piecemeal at this point where, where these projects are happening. But it needs to be happening on a mass scale. I mean, we could really turn around the drought in the West, in the Western U.S., if we restored lands, if we reforested, if we restored the waterways. It could really stem the drought. That's now, what, the worst drought in 1,200 years. But there's so, there's so much that could be done. But like I said, it's, there's no profits to be made, right? You know, you're putting money into it, and you're going to see long-term benefits for humanity, but you're not going to make profits for the corporation or the entity that's doing this, right? It's a cost. One of the things that Marx talks about in Volume 1 of Capital, when he's analyzing the evolution, he's analyzing the anatomy and also the historical evolution of capitalism, that in order for the capitalist class to grow, it needed a working class that was, quote, free, meaning not tied to the land and also propertyless. And the, the fact that that available working class did not own property, did not own any means of production, required that part of the, of society to actually go to work as, quote, free labor, free in the sense that they could go to different capitalist corporations, but not free in the sense that they, if they didn't work, they could live. They, they were wage slaves, according to Marx, because as a class, they were compelled to work for somebody. Otherwise, they would starve. They had no other means of sustenance. And so part of the part of the creation of a part of society that was available as a free labor pool was the, the driving of peasants off of the land or taking what had been common lands and used communally or collectively and driving the peasants out by making those lands enclosed by private property. This was the actual historical process creating the modern proletariat in Europe or part of that process. And when we think about reforestation and what you're talking about, like what a big difference it would make, the bottom line, the fundamental thing is that land would have to become collective again. It would have to become communal. It would have to be owned by society. It would have to be public property as it had been for you know most of the existence of our species. I mean, human beings didn't say, this is my lake or my forest or my land. This was from nature and belonged to all, part of the richness available to the human family for its own development. So that's why I think the issue of reforestation goes really to the heart of the fight against capitalism in a way, because it goes to the question of ownership. Private property, in the bottom line of private property, the essence of private property is the right to exclude the right to keep some people away if it's private property and land, to keep people some, some people off the land, make them trespassers. And it would seem to me that the, the entire, again, the essence of the socialist vision is to make 
that private property, public property. I'm looking at Nature Magazine, which is an important scientific journal, which people can find by going to nature.com, a really important journal. There is room for growth, talking now about reforestation. A lot of it, in fact. A 2011 analysis suggested that some 2 billion hectares of land, an area larger than South America, is suitable for restoration. Much of this land has been deforested or degraded as a result of human activity. And many countries and organizations have made promises in the past decade to help fill that area. There are pledges to plant billions or even trillions of trees and regional programs such as Africa's Great Green Wall, which would surround the Sahara Desert, which you mentioned, with vegetation. China has set some of the most ambitious national targets. It's aiming to plant 6.7 million hectares worth of trees, roughly the size of Ireland this year alone. And this article comes from a couple of years ago. Anyway, let's talk about, I want to stay with the issue of reforestation and also the issue of, of ownership. Whose land is it? Yeah, going back to your point about being, you know, the workers being forced, forcibly moved from their lands into the factories of Europe. I mean, that was a big step back for humanity's understanding of local ecology and sort of putting us on this trajectory of, of where we are today with climate change. You know, indigenous communities still today, you know, largely still have that ancestral knowledge of local ecology and this respect for the natural world. And you can see that when you look at the biodiversity numbers. Indigenous held lands make up only 20% of the Earth's land mass, but actually hold 80% of remaining biodiversity because they have that deep understanding of the local ecology, where they live, and how to live in a reciprocal relationship with the planet, right? So, you know, the rest of us have lost that, you know, through the rise of feudalism, through capitalism, and like you said, being forcibly removed from our lands and and no longer being able to sustain ourselves from our lands. So one big piece of the puzzle of solving climate change is to, to moving back towards understanding our local ecology and, and partnering with indigenous communities across the globe to really, you know, share knowledge and resources and, and find a way to, to heal our, these ecosystems because those communities, the indigenous communities do still have that knowledge. The elders still hold that knowledge of how to live in alignment with the planet. But yeah, the reforestation, yeah, you mentioned the one, yeah, there's another, there's a great green wall in China as well as a great green wall in Africa, yeah, that's similar. And it's really hopeful what they're doing because it, it can really reverse things. And like I said, like trees create rain. They release moisture in the atmosphere and they also release microbes that form clouds. They seed clouds. Without that, without those microbes, you know, the rains, like I said, come as these like, atmospheric rivers, these torrential rains that cause flooding. So this cycle, this process that trees provide, you know, with a small water cycle is really a major climate stabilizer. And I also want to mention, you know, in colonization of North America, one of the main driving forces was the fur trade and specifically beaver pelts. And I want to mention this because Beaver populations were all over North America, and they created wetlands, and they're keystone species, so they're very important for all these habitats. And like the continent of North America, before the fur traders came, the colonizers came and killed them off. I mean, now we only have like 
2% of the beaver population that we that was originally here. But it really transformed the entire landscape of the continent and made it much drier because <laughs> the beavers will take a little stream and make it a wetland area, right? So that is another major thing we need to look at. I know Pacific Northwest, the Northeast in New England, there's some programs to reintroduce beaver to help restore ecosystems. And some there's some in California too, but there needs to be way more. So along with reforestation, we need to also be looking at these, you know, these habitats that species create, like they're better hydrological engineers than humans are actually. Like they can turn around a system in a matter of weeks or a month, you know, like really transform, you know, a dry land with a tiny little creek into a wetland area and like creating a habitat and retaining rains that do come then, you know, so it doesn't just wash off into the ocean. So there's just, yeah, there's just so many things that could be done as far as ecological restoration that could really turn it around. The reason I want to stay focused on this and the reason I think your book is important and the title is important is that there's a paralyzing element when you talk to people about climate change. They think like, I can't do anything about climate change. I'm too small. Even if we have a demonstration, even if it's big, even if it's 100,000 people, you know, there are seven or eight billion, I don't know what the number is, human beings on the planet. They have to eat. They have to, for poorer societies, they have to develop. They need energy. In the United States, you have the Pentagon, which is, I think, the biggest user of fossil fuels. Like, it's just too big. The problem is too big, and we can't do anything about it. And so it has this, we have this kind of weird dynamic in society. The capitalist class won't do anything because, as you pointed out, it doesn't contribute to their profits, which is the only thing they care about and the only reason their corporations exist, which is to generate profit for investors, especially the biggest investors. So the capitalist won't do anything. The capitalist politicians won't do anything because they're all in the back pocket of the capitalists. And then society as a whole doesn't have, you know, like the working class, the people, young people don't have political power at their disposal so that they can make change. So there's a sense of inevitability, a sense of paralysis that comes with inevitability, because the only time real social change or political change or economic change or radical change of any type actually happens is when people make that change. But in order for them to make the change, they have to feel the thing they're doing, which is outside their routine of staying alive, the, the taking of political action, that it will make a difference. People have to believe that they can make a difference, even if it's like even if it's a somewhat idealistic conception at first, the idea that we can make a change makes us act as a people. And that's the only way for change to happen. And that's why I think it's really, really important for people to realize that climate solutions, in fact, are at hand. And we can do things like reforestation, but it goes to the question of whose land is it? Can we as a people, meaning the human family, can we as a society take control of the land and plant those trillion trees or two trillion trees? And you know, one of the problems also, Tina, and I want, I'm sure you address it. You're in a speaking tour right now. I'm sure you're talking about it because lots of people are coming to hear you speak is, you know, how land ownership or private property isn't inevitable because there too people think, oh, that's just the way things are. 
But human beings came into existence like two or 300,000 years ago. And human beings developed speech, we think, around 50,000 years ago. But private property on the land, land ownership, say in England, where capitalism really takes root, that's around the 17th century. So if we've been around as a, as a species that's talking to each other for 50,000 years, but land has only been privately owned for 200 years, that means in the existence of the human family, if you think of the human family as, a, as part of a 24-hour clock, the existence of private property would be like about one second in that 24 hours, meaning most of the time we've ex existed as a species, we've owned land in common, meaning we can go back. Right. I mean, honestly, I think most people would be much happier living under a social system where we're sharing resources and cooperating on, you know, solving all the problems that we face. It's really, you know, capitalism, when you think about it, when you step back and can see step outside the system and look at it, right? It's like, it's so irrational. It's so inhumane. It's, there's no sense to it at all. And why shouldn't, I mean, the whole idea of even, yeah, owning land, who, why should we own the land? Land is the home we live on, you know, the planet that sustains us. It shouldn't be owned by any individuals. It should be shared, like all resources, right? And going back to what you said about, you know, taking action, it's like studies show that despite growing concern in the U.S. about climate change, only 5% of the population thinks there's anything that can be done to reverse it. That is a huge problem. And that comes from, you know, the media constantly spewing out the, the doom and gloom stories, the bad things, the deteriorating climate, and also Hollywood that bombards us with all these apocalyptic future stories, you know, of dystopian societies and, you know, all these things. And like, no one sees another possibility. They're just, you know, the negative is all they see. And I feel like it's so important for us, for revolutionaries, for socialists, for folks who know about the solutions to really educate others on it. Because if people don't know their solutions, they're not going to stand up and demand action. They don't even want to think about it. They want to like turn away from the issue because it causes too much anxiety, which I get if you don't think there's solutions why would you want to think about climate change? I mean, that was one of the, the impetus for me writing the book in the first place was many folks in my, you know, activist spaces and organi fellow organizers, a few of them had said, like, when you speak about climate, I, I actually have to leave the room because it gives me too much anxiety. And I was like, okay, <laughs> we need to have a publication that lays out the solution so folks can get over that anxiety and see that there actually is hope and there is a path forward for humanity, that we do have the tools and the knowledge. But yeah, we in the end, we need to move to socialism because, like you said, land needs to be communally owned so that we can actually restore these lands without having to fight each private owner of the land, right? to reforest it or whatever, whatever we need to do to, to restore ecosystems. But I want to point out, like, public lands in the U.S. aren't really public either. Like, cattle ranchers can graze their, you know, use it for grazing lands, even though it's public land, which is a big problem because it's like, you think public lands are protected? They're not. They're overgrazed because of the ability of, of ranchers to use those lands. And other things, oil drilling and, as well on public lands. But yeah, we need to move to a communal society, a, commun a cooperative, and also across borders. We need internationalist 
you know, view of the world where we're working across borders, sharing resources and, and addressing the legacy of colonialism and, and imperialism that's left the global south in a state of, you know, lower development. And there needs to be assistance from the global north so that those countries can develop on a sustainable path, which what China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative is doing that, is helping those countries develop in that direction. But it's really the U.S. and Europe, who for centuries have exploited the global south, need to pay up. It's time. <laughs> and, you know, under capitalism, it's hard to imagine that happening. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more, because one of the arguments put forward, and it's real, is that the U.S. and Europe and Japan, the, the already existing most highly developed capitalist countries, have historically been not only harvesting oil and and other fossil fuels, they've been using it. And they used it to develop their societies to overcome poverty, to overcome underdevelopment. And at the same time, they imposed underdevelopment on the colonies. So as Walter Rodney wrote in his famous book, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, that Africa wasn't always underdeveloped. The European colonialists and capitalists came and extracted natural resources from Africa under the conditions where all of the, the benefits of that extraction process went to a handful of capitalists and maybe to a larger society, but those societies were outside of Africa. And in Latin America, underdeveloped Asia, you know, all of the parts of the world that are were either colonized or semi-colonized, including China, by the way. So Western apologists for capitalism and imperialism and do-nothingism, which is another feature, is, you know, the argument is made, well, the environmentalists either don't care about the development, the poverty, the needs of the so-called third world, they don't care about them, they turn away from them, or they're going to help the third world at our expense, meaning we, if there's a decolonization of energy and decolonization generally, it'll be at the expense of society or, you know, the populations that live in these major capitalist countries. Anyway, how do you respond? Yeah. So when you look at the cumulative emissions since the industrial revolution, the U S is responsible for 27% of those emissions and Europe, 25% of those emissions and the rest of the world is the rest. And that's not just in the past either. The U.S. still has the largest per capita emissions today. And I want to point out that, you know, any U.N. reporting exempts the military industrial complex emissions. And like you said, like the Pentagon is the largest consumer of fossil fuels on the planet. Studies show that emissions tied just to the Pentagon are equal to that of 140 countries combined. I mean, that's insane. So how can you look at, you can't look at the climate crisis as if we're all on an even playing field. <laughs> you have to look at the historical context. And also you have to, you have to look at outsourcing of production too, because how much of China's emissions today are actually due to the production of goods that are consumed within the U.S., right? So it's like, yeah, the imperialists love to play it like, oh, history started today and these are our emissions today and look at China, they're so bad. But you really have to look at it through the, the lens of imperialism, colonialism and the, the ongoing exploitation of, of the global south. 
And yes, there need to be reparations. There need to be reparations paid for the legacy of colonialism and imperialism that continues today. I mean, countries in the global south are like locked into these like trade agreements that are written by transnational corporations. Like, for instance, Monsanto writes agreements that forces farmers in the global south to buy their seeds and things like that. Like, there's so many things that imperialism is still holding down the global south from developing in a sustainable way. And yeah, that really needs to end. And we really have no hope of reversing the climate crisis if we don't end imperialism, right? Because it's so divisive. It's constantly pitting countries against each other. Anyone who's taking an independent path is crushed by the U.S. Or, and their European partners. And it's really going to be impossible to develop, you know, on a sustainable path globally and to address climate change without addressing imperialism, which I think that is our role as socialists too, and progressive people like within the climate justice movement, we need to push it to the left, right? It needs to be anti-imperialist. No one in the, they don't talk about it, right? They focus on like emissions reductions and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, it needs to be discussed in the global context of foreign policy, global imperialism, because that plays such a huge role in overcoming this challenge we face. So it needs, you know, we need to be pushing messages of, you know, anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism and socialism in the climate justice movement to really to really push it forward in a in a way that can actually address the issue. Tina, you've seen the the video, the story of stuff. It was made by Annie Leonard and I think it's from 2009, so it's quite old. Maybe there's an updated version. But it looks at the sort of the underside of production and consumption patterns. So, you know, one of the points that the movie makes, and it's really worth watching, I think. I thought it was useful. I mean, it doesn't point in the direction of socialism, but it does highlight some of the the patterns of consumption, which are, you know, people think of consumption and consuming as like, do I as an individual have access to commodities that make my life better that previous generations didn't have? And so in a way, there's kind of this individualization of consumption. And so for environmentalists, for socialists or socialist environmentalists, again, the, the way the capitalists would present it is you're trying to take stuff away from people. But what I thought was really important about this video and all of the other studies is the irrationality of a global capitalist system, which is the one that advertises consumption, promotes consumption, makes us consumers rather than humans. You know, like fundamentally, we're all customers. Even if we, when we go to the doctor, they like doctor's offices or hospitals treat you as a customer rather than like a human who has the need to see a doctor. So there's this whole sort of psychology and narrative built into all of this. But, you know, if we're buying T-shirts in the United States and the T-shirts cost like 10 bucks, but the T-shirt is made in Bangladesh, that means a capitalist has taken money from the United States, capital from the United States, invested it in Bangladesh, hired workers at very, very low wages in Bangladesh. But the workers will still be happier to have jobs than not have jobs, again, because they're proletarians and as wage slaves, they'll die if they don't have a job. But they hire them at low wages. They produce shirts, thus, at a lower cost. But those shirts, in order to come to U.S. stores, have to be put back on ships that travel 
all the way across the world. And so the actual cost of production, the actual privatized cost of production can't really be like $7 at which the seller sells the t-shirt at $10 and still makes a $3 profit. The real social cost of producing stuff halfway around the world, the social costs are much greater. Anyway, it's the irrational feature, that part of globalization. And, and part of the climate solutions would have to be reorganizing production, not that the world trade would disappear, but it would have to be put on a rational basis. And a lot of things that are produced somewhere else because the capitalists can make a bigger profit by paying lower wages, they'd have to be produced closer to home. Anyway, let's talk about that phenomena, if you would. Yeah. So just looking at uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the outsourcing of production, since the early 90s, when globalization really took off, emissions from shipping rose 400%. So just that alone is is unsustainable and it's not logical. It's like things need to be produced locally. And, you know, global South countries with sustainable development and assistance can then produce goods for their own people locally, right? But yeah, that would be a big reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by undoing globalization in the sense, in the exploitative sense, right? Of it's all about profits for these corporations. But, and to go back to the story of stuff video, it points out that, you know, it really talks about the whole perceived obsolescence and planned obsolescence, basically how the capitalists make things that are meant to break in a short time period so that you buy more things and perceived obsolescence, which is the marketing part of it, right? Where you, you think you need the new thing because it's the style. But, you know, studies show that things like 99% of things bought today will be disposed of in just six months from now. That is an incredibly wasteful system. And that's partly because things aren't made to last, right? So you, you have to toss them out and get a new one, right? And it's just making disposable items on purpose, right? Plastics that are disposable, things like that. And also, so much is of the waste is actually created during the production process. It's 70% of waste is created during the production process before these products even get to consumers, which is why household recycling isn't really going to solve anything. It's so much is wasted within the production system itself. And food, food is 35 to 50% of food is wasted in the U.S., in, largely in production and distribution. Yeah, it's not a logical system. It's not looking at conservation. It's not looking at sustainability. It's all about what can we make quickly, cheaply, you know, with the cheapest labor and the cheapest materials, with complete disregard for how much waste is created, you know, how much resources are used. It really doesn't care. It's all about the quarterly returns and not long-term sustainability, which is what socialism looks at, right? It looks at what is needed for society by the people, what is needed for the people, and how can we make that in the most sustainable way for the long term, right? And that is a complete opposite of what capitalism does, which is why we're in this situation. But yeah, outsourcing and protection, like we don't, and also like in the U.S. and the global north, like we're so used to now be able to get fresh peaches all year round, you know, like from other countries. And it's like we need to move back to eating locally, eating seasonally, which is actually healthier anyway, and giving up some of that that access that we've gotten used to really just in the last like 20 years or so. And I think people would be fine with that. I mean, I know we're all trained to be consumers in a certain sense, but I think when we, if people really understood and were educated about the implications of, of having access to all these things and what it does to the rest of the world and, 
you know, what it takes away from the people of the rest of the world, not to mention the climate, you know, they would be okay with shifting back to how we used to live, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago. We were just fine without all those things. But yeah, the mass marketing campaign that, that really arose after World War II in the U.S. is really, it really pushed these products and people that really didn't need them and, and the whole perceived obsolescence idea and all these things that just keep profits going to the, the corporations and, and really aren't really necessary for, for human happiness or, you know, survival in any way. When you think about what exists in our own homes. Like if I, if I go in to the bathroom, for instance, and brush my teeth, there's a little tube of toothpaste and I'm going to go buy another tube of toothpaste in a month. It would seem to me that the cost of the toothpaste that's inside this container that has materials that are either plastic or require mining and industrial use, like the fact that everything comes in packaging and the packaging itself is probably a bigger cost of production than the thing that you actually want. Like the toothpaste itself is probably cheaper than the packaging in the toothpaste. And yet the way packaging is done, which creates so much garbage and so much you know, redundancy in terms of production and so much waste, none of those decisions about how we get our toothpaste, for instance, I don't want to hyper-focus on toothpaste, but why not? How we get and hold toothpaste or any other commodity, disposable commodity, all of those decisions are made by capitalists. They're not made in Congress. They're not made by us. They're not subject to decision-making, but they actually have a huge impact on society. Right. I mean, and it's really, you know, so much of pretty much all packaging is made with petrochemicals, which help the oil industry, right? I mean, it's all one cycle that, you know, keeps these corporations' profits rolling in. But studies show that actually 90% of plastics could be replaced with bioplastics, like things like rapidly renewing kelp is very fast growing. It's like three feet per day it can grow, you know, could replace plastics. And yeah, there could be stores where you go with your containers and you fill them up with, you know, that could be bulk everything, you know, and really reduce the need for packaging and all these throwaway things, which is a, is a huge, huge problem. I mean, we, we know like microplastics are now in the air we breathe, in the water, in the snow, in the rainfall. It's been found in like the placenta of babies, like, you know, it's everywhere and it's toxic and it's causing, you know, health problems, you know, it will continue for hundreds of years because it's so much in our environment. So, yeah, that's another way we need to really rethink how we're producing things. And like you said, it's the billionaires, it's the corporate owners. They're deciding what materials are used, how much waste is created, you know, how much is produced, what is produced. We have no say in it. And we're just, you know, it's all pushed on us to continue buying it without any say in how it's made or what materials are used. And, and, you know, companies that do try to go green, like for real, you know, they find out they can't survive. Like the sneaker company Puma did a study of, you know, how they could totally green their products and they found out it, they would actually go under, they would go out of business because it was not cost effective. Right. And it's like, even if one CEO decides to be, change their company to be sustainable, it's, it's not going to be profitable for the shareholders and they will be replaced by another CEO who's willing to go back to the status quo and, you know, keep profits rolling in despite the environmental impacts. So it's the system itself just perpetuates a cycle of degradation and pollution of the environment and the climate. And it's, 
really got to end. I mean, we live on a finite planet with finite resources and, and capitalism requires endless growth and it's just not sustainable. And it's endless growth. And I want to make the distinction here, endless growth for their profit. There is the issue of relative growth, absolute growth, what's needed, what do people need? Obviously, in order to convince working class folks that socialism is better, the case must be made that it's going to be a better society. It's going to be better for them. It's very personal. And right now, people think, oh, I'm going to, you know, under the current system, I have a house, I have a car, I have, you know, my stuff. And so this kind of identification of personal property with private property, when, when socialists talk about private property, we're talking about who owns the land? Can it be owned by society? People would still have access to the land, but it wouldn't be the capitalists making all the decisions. Same with how we get our toothpaste or get any other product. What's the packaging like? You know, it's not like society disappears under socialism. It's just reorganized. And it's reorganized on a rational basis. So, for instance, right now, people who have been working remotely and who like working remotely, they don't want to go back and sit in the car for an hour a day in order to get to work where they work. And they work there in order to get the food they need and the, the money they need to be able to sustain themselves and their families. And then they drive home. So they spend a big part of their day either getting ready to go to work and then commuting to work and then working and then coming back and commuting again. And a lot of it's in cars. And those cars are using gasoline and other fossil fuels. And so the system could be reorganized where it's actually in all ways or almost in all ways beneficial to each of the individuals who now exist in society. Like instead of having to commute, have work organize where people live. Get rid of all of this long distance commuting. Again, it's only, you know, we pay the cost of the commute. The, our bosses don't pay for our gas or our car to get us to work or the tolls. But right now, we could reorganize society such that it minimizes and then eliminates the use of fossil fuels, goes to renewable energy like. Well, you'll go over it, but solar, wind, water, etc. We can reorganize the infrastructure and the way society lives so that it's not really a deprivation. We're not going backwards. Socialism doesn't mean the loss of basic things that people want in society. It's the reorganization of how they're produced, how they're distributed, and also to overcome some of the consumption patterns where people are hooked because of advertising on having to always get new stuff. And that's all done by the capitalists who have planned obsolescence of existing goods or existing fashion items. And so we, we're buying stuff we actually don't need in order to have a good life, but we think we need it. Anyway, it's comprehensive, but it's all doable. Yeah, and I think it's so important for us as revolutionaries, as socialists, as folks who work in, around climate to really give a vision of the future, a positive vision of the future, of what it could look like, right? If we heal the planet, if we transform our cities into being eco-cities, if we have 
like you said, having your workplace is near where you live. Recreation is near where you live. So cities are walkable and bikeable and, you know, everything is sort of contained within, you know, neighborhoods where all the resources, all your needs are met, your shopping needs, your, you know, food, everything, you know, cultural activities so that every neighborhood would have equal access to things. And that includes rural areas too. Like, you know, things could be developed in a, in a way where there's more abundance, actually, for everyone instead of how it is now where the working class communities, low income communities, communities of color are the ones that, you know, have food deserts, have no trees in their neighborhood, have, have to deal with the urban heat island effect that's like 10, sometimes 10 degrees hotter or more than rich neighborhoods that have a lot of greenery and trees. So much could be done that would actually improve the lives of the majority of people if we had a socialist system, if we had a planned economy where the resources were, you know, were used for the benefit of people and development in a way, growth for the people, not for the profits of the corporation. But I do feel like people don't, it's hard for people to see outside their daily lives, outside of the current system where everything's, you know, any development is really taking back from what we have. It's often not benefiting anyone. It's making life harder for the working class making their commutes longer because housing prices keep going up and they have to be pushed out farther and farther away from their jobs. And yeah, so I think it's so important that we really explain the possibilities of how things could be better, how how we could have way more abundance in our life and, you know, have biodiverse cities that, you know, they're part of the ecosystem and, you know, how great that would be. And they'd be so much cooler and, you know, just there'd be lush recreation areas everywhere that people could access, unlike today, right? Where you're just living around concrete. So yeah, there's so much that can be done and so many positive things that socialism would bring. One of the, one of the things that we are looking for is places where people are trying new things. And obviously it's a big issue everywhere, but in China, where China adopted the what was called the opening up reforms at the end of the 1970s. And the priority under the new leadership in China after Mao's death was uh, rapid, very, very rapid economic development because poverty was such a big deal, so important in China. Again, it's, you know, 250 years ago, China was the biggest economy in the world. But world capitalism developed in Europe and then the United States and Japan. And basically, China was taken over. And so its development process was suspended and it became poorer, underdeveloped. And so when the Chinese Communist Party became the ruling party in 1949, the main goal was economic development. And there were different schemes and models used. And then after Mao's death, Deng Xiaoping had the opening up reforms where the allowance of a market of capitalism was obviously intentionally created as a stimulus for economic development. And Western capitalist corporations were invited into China and they came in because they could you know, make lots of profits, super profits, because they paid Chinese workers a lot less than they'd say pay workers in Detroit. Bad for workers in Detroit, but good for the corporations. And the deal that China was making was, okay, now we're going to get access to technology and that's going to help us overcome our underdevelopment. But one of the issues, one of the attendant issues with this rapid, super fast, super fast growth rates was a lot of pollution where China's big cities 
were becoming just people couldn't breathe. And the Chinese government reorganized and took stock of the situation and started to engage in all of these green technologies and green plans and tried to reorganize and sort of regulate and build cities differently so that pollution wasn't so powerfully negative. In 2017, China announced plans to build 285 eco-cities in order to sort of turn things around. And this is their bid to fight pollution and create sustainability. Their goal then was to become, China was hoping to become the world's leading power in sustainability. I mean, this is a society where most of the people are still very, very poor, Tina. The per capita income for quote, average Chinese person is still 17.9% of what it is for someone living in the United States. And yet the government looking at the situation said, look, we're going to take action. We're going to try to build 285 eco cities, meaning sustainable, non-polluting cities. And I'm not sure where what the status is of all of that. I'm sure there's been disruptions because of, the, of COVID and other things. But I know they've built a lot of eco cities. It just shows that they're with authority, with power, and with the government being able to manage resources in a planned way, a lot can be done. And again, it's not because we're looking as to China and putting China on a pedestal and say, look, let's just be like China. No, it's not that. What my point is, is that with intentionality and the directed use of resources, reorganization actually can take place. Yeah, and in 2012, China actually wrote the goal of building an ecological civilization into their constitution, and then since then have integrated that into their development plans. And they're actually not developing some things as rapidly as they could in order to meet that goal of being ecologically sustainable as well. So yeah, and I've read they have, they're the only country that has sort of the reverse migration Instead of people moving to urban areas, it's actually the reverse. Lots of people are moving out into the countryside to help build these eco-cities and eco-villages and also transform their agriculture to be regenerative and organic. So, yeah, there's a mass mass campaign that's happening inside China to really shift things. They also had a – I work in air quality regulation and government agency in the Bay Area, and – China had a 35% reduction of particulate matter pollution in Beijing just over a four-year period from 2013 to 2017. 35%, and that comes from burning of fossil fuels, particulate matter. 35% is unheard of, of a reduction. Like in my agency, if the agency I work at, if we had a half percent reduction in a four-year period, we would be celebrating. Like, So it really shows what can be done when government has control over industry and transportation and can really look at, you know, still providing for society, but cutting back and implementing probably emission control measures that can really protect people and how rapidly things can change. It's really amazing. Yeah. And the eco cities are building and the photos I've seen and just the yeah, it's amazing what they're doing. And and it's really, it's mobilizing all of society. See, that's a difference. It's like not a corporation going in and having this project and hiring some folks to do it. It's mobilizing all of society to make these transformations and, and putting the resources to it and the funding and all these things, like planning the entire economy around these major goals that they have. And it's just like, that can never happen under capitalism. It's all, 
you know, random, whatever one corporation wants to do with, you know, maybe there'll be a little government subsidy here or there, but it's not enough to make sort of transformative change like that. But yeah, it's pretty impressive. And I, I just also mentioned, like, despite the people in China, you know, don't have the income that and the luxuries necessarily, so-called luxuries that we have here in the global north, they did eradic- recently completely eradicate extreme poverty in the entire country through like campaigns of going out and seeing what people need and really and bringing communities up in development in a sustainable way. So yeah, people's lives are slowly, all the population is improving, really. Yeah, the, the eradication of extreme poverty lifted 850 million people, that's almost three times the size of the entire U.S. population, out of extreme poverty. And by extreme poverty, the international definition is living on less than $2 a day. So it doesn't mean that they're rich. It doesn't mean that they're, quote, middle class. But when you have a society where 850 million people are living on less than $2 a day, and they have to be fed and clothed and educated and have healthcare services, all of which is under the purview of the Chinese government. I mean, that's just such an amazing responsibility. We're not putting the government on a pedestal, but the point that we're making is if a government has basically control over the nation's resources, and if it wants to do good things like build eco-cities and make society sustainable rather than just you know saying all of nature's bounty is given over to capitalists and we who are part of nature we're given over to capitalists too because we have to work for them in order to survive instead of doing it that way intentionally organizing the way resources are produced and the way they're distributed in a rational way we can actually mitigate and perhaps reverse global warming and, and climate change that is you know, leading to real catastrophe. Two final questions, Tina. How do people get your book? And secondly, if they want to have you come and speak at their union or at their campus, in their community, how can they reach out to you? I know you're on a nationwide speaking tour. The book is Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Where do people get it? How do they find it? And again, how do they reach you if they want you as a speaker? Yeah, so you can get the book at liberationnews.org. Go to the publications tab and you can buy the book there. We also have a Kindle version if you want to save paper. And you can find out on the homepage of liberationnews.org is the article that has the tour schedule. So if you want to check where I'll be in the upcoming months, I'm going to finishing up a Northeast tour right now. And I'll be in traveling around California in August. And then in October, I'll be in the Southeast. But yeah, if you want to add, reach out to us to add your city, you can contact us through pslweb.org. Just go to the contact tab and you can reach out to us there. And then we can try to add your city pslweb.org. Okay, we'll leave it right there. We've been speaking with Tina Landis. She is the author of Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina Landis, thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 